Hey, George Mason University. I am joined with some great colleagues today to discuss artificial intelligence and its effects on higher education in general and Pete more specifically. Um, let me first introduce the two Zoomers, uh, Kevin Richards from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for stuff. Uh, and then Chad Killian from uh, the University of New Hampshire, 20 minutes from the beach, hour from um, Portland, Maine. And, you know, yeah, I learned a lot about that. So welcome. Thanks, Risto. And finally, and I think this is only my second in-studio guest. Uh, and we're surrounded by Annika's play toys, my daughter's play toys in there. So this is my studio. Uh, Donald Howley from the great Towson University. Um, welcome. Thank you, Risto. Uh, so for those of you who have been living under a rock, uh, ChatGPT uh, is an artificial intelligence chatbot that is stirring a lot of commotion. Um, so if you think about like an, a chatbot when you go on to your uh, you know, bank account and you're trying to ask questions, that's a chatbot. This is like a thousand times scarier and more powerful. Um, but um, you can sign up for it and we'll put the link in there if you're interested in looking at it. But basically, if you go to openai.com, uh, you can sign around, uh, sign up on an account, play around with it. It's free, at least for now. Um, but basically, it's a super smart AI computer that gives you answers to a lot of questions. But Chad is also going to give us a little background because Chad has thought about this and publishes stuff on, um, on technology. Um, but basically, let me give you an example. For instance, I just pasted yesterday in front of our faculty meeting. Um, I took Virginia standard of learning from seventh grade. I pasted it into ChatGPT and I said, write me a 45 minute lesson plan for seventh grade. Um, using cooperative games and it took that and it wrote this you know it wasn't a perfect lesson plan it didn't fit our formatting for our um for our university um but it was a pretty good start in 45 seconds uh and it like you should have seen my faculty colleague spaces they were just in shock because they hadn't played around with it and they were just so surprised so um Anyway, so that's just the tip of the iceberg there. Um, let me go with Chad. What, what's your opinion on this? Where, where are you at with this? A little personal vindication here. I remember we talked about AI a while back and yeah. we weren't sure where it was going. And I, you know, I feel like this really came out of nowhere in the last like six weeks. I don't know if anybody else got that feeling, but you know, it's been on the radar. You've, you've kind of heard about it maybe peripherally on the internet, but now it's what New York Times, YouTube videos, all sorts of I just got an email two days ago from UNH. We're having a faculty sort of uh, panel about it. So it's here, it's in everybody's faces. And, you know, I think it's a neutral development depending on how we look at it. Uh, I think there's a lot of positives to it. We can see that, you know, it can support lesson planning, support brainstorming um, for research papers. It can support sort of initial phases of thinking uh, on the other hand, it can also complete your assignments for you if you're an undergrad student and potentially complete your papers, depending on the data that you input without a whole lot of thought um, and everything in between there. So um, 
it, it's you know it's up to us as a field and, and probably inter- individual faculty how do how we want to approach this and you know offhand the best way I see is is learning about it and leveraging it for for positive benefit of our students. Um, I think the initial perhaps the initial sort of thought from a lot of people is like freaking out about cheating and and just abuse of this and you know there's always concerns about that and this isn't the first time kids are going to be thinking about cheating so um i think that understanding it from our for our own uh learning and then sort of translating that and helping students understand how they can leverage it uh would be the best approach at least at this stage kevin what do you think uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, uh, that that I agree with a lot of Chad's points. Um, the conversations are, you know, like with many things uh, on university campuses, the conversations might be starting a little bit late, a little bit, a little bit behind. But um, uh, our our university circulated uh, some messaging um, about this, specifically in relation about AI, specifically in relation to the potential for for students to use it to cheat in classes. Um, you know, from, from what I've heard, I, I would agree with Chad's perspective and that, that most of the response that I have that I've heard to this point has been cautionary and questioning. Um, it, it feels like there's uncertainty. It feels like there's nervousness, uh, particularly related to how um, students uh, and other members of an academic community may may use uh, you know something something like uh, this this AI bot for, uh, for for nefarious purposes. But I think that there's also a lot of conversation to be had about about the potential for this to help. Um, you know, the, the the example that I was thinking about a few days ago was that if you look at um, you know in service physical education teachers. Uh, their planning behaviors uh, aren't aren't necessarily where we want them to be. They don't they don't plan in the ways that they're often encouraged to and taught to in teacher education. Um, you know, if if they plan at all. Uh, and while I don't think this is the solution for for teacher planning, because I I think that there are contextual elements. You have to understand the setting that you're working in, your students, a whole litany of factors. Um, you know, as Risto said at the opening, it, it can it can jumpstart ideas, generate initial thoughts, and provide perspective um, that, that can get us to think. So I think that it's still going to need to be an AI human interaction. Uh, I think if we got to a state where it was solely AI, uh, then we'd be living in like Wally. But um, but for now, with with it being this kind of human AI interaction, I think that there's some potential there. Don't and, play to play to around with that. Uh, I did play with it for the first time uh, yesterday. Um, like Chad and Kevin, I would like to keep a glass half full about this stuff. Um, but again, uh, the, mo- the as I as I worked with it originally, I'm like, this is really cool. This is really fun. And then it just started to descend into a think of all the horrible ways in which this could be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if are manipulated for in the spirit of what it might actually be beneficial for for uh, for for everyone for for instructors for students teachers etc. So it reminds me a little bit of the invention of dynamite, um, where it's actually used for you know something about the purpose it eventually ends up being used mm-hmm. for most predominantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that 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 that's a that that's a really a really good point, Donald. Um, you know, you know, while I while I I'm trying to keep a half glass full of it as well. You know, there are there are some potential really negative things that could happen with this if if we, with AI if we step outside of the realm and of physical education and think about it. You know, broader social issues. 
Um, it, it, it does seem, uh, though, that they've, that they've it, it tried to construct it in a way so that it has some kind of a, for lack of a better way to put it, moral compass. So that if you ask it to give it something, if you ask it to give you something back that, that contradicts its, its programming, then, then it won't do that. Uh, and it'll give you a rationale and explanation for, for why, um, and, and it'll just kind of stop the generation. Yeah, I, I think that's the difference between sort of this chat bot, which is what we're talking about, where it sort of synthesizes available information on the internet and sort of outputs the most sort of neutral <laughs> perspective. But that's where understanding what it actually is comes in handy it's only as good as the information that's currently posted online. And so when we're using it, when, you know, when undergrads use it to plan, it's taking from sort of a dominant online discourse. And I typed in, you know, what is quality physical education? And if you do that, it's, it's a very, uh, it's the standard version, skills, knowledge, dispositions necessary mm -hmm. to live, you know, a lifelong physical activity. It did, you know, touch a bit on inclusion, um, but it didn't really mention anything about meaningfulness or, or joy or finding personal relevance, or those types of things. And so educating our students and understanding that it's not right necessarily, it's just what's out there. And so for a field like ours, it's still sort of in a nascent stage of, of research. It's a dangerous thing to rely on what this bot says as, you know, quote unquote true, because I, I would say there isn't enough evidence, broadly speaking, to really be able to define quote unquote best practices uh, without some critical thinking. And if you think about like, if you're doing a reflection on a paper and that paper is behind a paywall, I'm sure the chat GPT does not have that paper, right? So if, if I ask them to do a critical analysis of Chad Killian's, you know, paper and reflect on how that affects you as a teacher, that's super hard for chat GPT to do. And plus, if that paper was published in 2022, chat GPT only goes until 2021. So all of 2022 is not there. And anything that's happening this last week or two months before, like those things are not in that system. And, and the thing doesn't work fully also. Like I, so I teach a writing intensive course and the writing intensive course is on uh, social and cultural issues and physical education. I'm teaching it this semester uh, starting uh, in January. And so I obviously thought about this. I'm like, okay, well, that's gonna be problematic. How are, how are my assignments set up? So I modified my assignments a little bit. There's not, you're no longer summarizing the key points in the you know, article or blog or whatever. That that's a small part of it, but I put my rubric in and I said, write me a 1000 word um, paper on this prompt. And, uh, you know, like it's a biographical essay or whatever. And it said, this kid lives in the Midwest, um, likes PE and PE is marginalized and had all these specific things, but that's like, that's some random person. That's not your biography and I copy and paste it into Word, it's 590 words. So I didn't complete a 1,000 word paper, even though I asked it to. It didn't, it's not APA formatted. There's no external citations. There's no, like, there are still things that 
it will not do if you modify your assignments appropriately. Yep, yep. I, I asked it the other day uh, to give me a 500 word description of occupational socialization theory as it relates to physical education. And I, and I asked it to, to also include APA style references. Hmm. Um, so it, what it spit back was, you know, honestly, um, with, with the exception of a couple of modifications that, that I would have made, maybe because I'm, I'm a bit picky because it's a theory I work with a lot. Um, you know, others may not have, uh, have uh, kind of looked at it with that same critical eye and, and been really happy overall with, with what it gave. Uh, it, did it did not give parenthetical referencing, though. And it only gave, I think, three or four references that were at the end. And they were not what I would consider to be the most appropriate references, given the overview of the theory that was provided. But, but, you know, if, if there was, if, if I was um, a doctoral student and I, and I came across occupational socialization theory in uh, an article and the article didn't give me a, a rich enough description to understand it and I wanted to learn more, uh, asking this may have been a really good kind of first step to, to kind of getting information. Now, it can't be the only step. It's kind of like, you know, um, uh, uh, Wikipedia. Right, so I don't think Wikipedia is a terrible first step when you're trying to get information on something, but it can't be your only step. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Kevin. You know, I mean, like this, it, it's not necessarily that this is anything new. I mean, the idea of like providing uh, a Wikipedia reference would be considered taboo ten years ago, fifteen years ago. A, a website blog; uh, these are all things that have, you know become more prevalent, and this is maybe the next thing that's coming down the line. Um, like I, I kind of looked at it as well from a, a, a peak lens. And so if I'm a pre-service teacher, which I was, uh, I, I don't think I, like, I mean, some of the stuff I punched in, I don't think I'd be able to articulate that as well. If I was an undergrad, if I was tipped back at being an undergraduate student compared to my understanding of it now as a, as a assistant professor in university. So I think some of the stuff is even beyond the articulation of what I feel I would have been even capable of if I was asked this question during my undergraduate PhD experience. But again, like you said, it does scrape along the surface in a very kind of neutral manner or a way that makes it understandable and accessible, even if it may not necessarily be the right information, which I guess is something we would expect from an undergraduate student. So would, let's say the, the four of us are in the same class and you know the professor gives us an assignment to summarize occupational socialization theory. If we ask the same question, Give me a 500 word summary of occupational socialization theory. Are we going to have four exactly the same um, assignments or is that based on me asking at that specific time, is the AI computer going to look differently? Because that, like, that would be a blatantly obvious way to see that people are cheating because if a professor is going through 15 papers and five of them are exactly the same, that's like a huge red flag immediately. So then you bring those yeah. people well, that's that's plagiarism but it but is it if they yeah, say I, I don't know how to answer that i don't know how to answer that direct question is that plagiarism that that, that i think is an interesting conversation um that, that maybe get may get onto a philosophical level but 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 i did try to uh, kind of feed it the same question or the same response or basically the same the same prompt uh, multiple times and it did give slightly different responses each time 
Um, I mean, th there was some overlap. There was some, there was some direct, like 100% match in terms of the text. Uh, so, so I think that it would be kind of a key off for that, but it, it, it was slightly different as well. Hmm. So are you going to discuss this with students? Like the students that you teach, are you going to like introduce it, talk about it? Like, what's your plan? I definitely am. Yeah. So I'm teaching two sort of content and application courses, um, sort of synthesis of sort of developing, learning the content and then applying it in, the, in a physical activity setting. Um, so yeah, kind of what we mentioned is like, this is a tool that can be used to get your planning started, but it is not, uh, it, it can't replace it for all the reasons that we've discussed. You still need to have a critical eye. You still need to be using appropriate resources, particularly those that might not be online. Um, because what I've noticed with some of the lesson plans uh, that I've asked it, it to create, it's sort of weird talking about this thing as though it, like it's a person, <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll get used to that. Um, but it's very sterile, the, like, for, ex for example, like the warm up, it has, you know, it has the parts of the lesson, you know, warm up, first activity, second activity, I don't know if it causes a closure, but you know, a, a closing activity or whatever. But the the warm ups, for example, are very uh, prescribed and exercise based. Um, and so, obviously, you know, we want to transition away from that in most courses. Um, and so, students are going to have to use their critical thinking to, you know, if they use the chatbot to develop this lesson, you know, jogging in place for two minutes, which is one of the things that it said is not appropriate. It's not appropriate. Um, and so, you know, I think. The longer we can think about that, for me personally, I, I would like to find deeper ways to integrate this um, in other courses. But um, in a simple sense, I think it's it's a conversation to have. It's a, another tool to use, just like PE Central, just like you know, uh, high quality social media resources, etc. Um, but with that, as we've said in some of the paper, you know, the paper, the Twitter paper that Kevin and I wrote, we need to use a critical lens. We need to have a, yeah. an eye for quality beyond what this cloud is you know machine is telling us and i like that you brought up pe central because students are going to pe central and looking up activities already and putting them and modifying them they're citing that they said i found this idea or this lesson plan or these parts of lesson plans from pe central but i mean what are they going to now just cite chat gpt like uh, it's just another so, resource you know and arguably if you say like you have to have critical elements and cues for uh, kicking a soccer ball. The student's not going to do like a, a motor development analysis on a, a person to figure out what it is. They're just going to go online and search and click and click and click and click. And then they're going to find it and they're going to copy and paste the critical elements or they're going to look in their book or whatever. And if you type in chat GPT, it just comes up super fast. You know, there you yeah. have so Kevin, are yeah. you, you going to use this with your, are you going to explain it to your students? Because you teach a uh, master's degree qual class, right? I, I teach a grad, a grad level qual, qualitative methods course. We're, we're uh, uh, in that right now. Um, you know, I think at, at, at this stage of development with, uh, with, uh, with, with um, this, um, with this AI, I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it for the particular class that I'm teaching this semester because a lot of it has to do with more hands-on qualitative research, like they're going to be going out and doing interviews and and that kind of stuff. And and I, I don't know that the technology is there yet for them to generate what they would need 
with the exception of maybe like the introduction of their paper without substantial labor. I, I, I think that there's probably other things that they would do before they would use this to say like fabricate an, inter, an interview or something. Yeah. Um, with, with that said though, for other classes that I teach, I, I definitely think that it'll be something that, that is on my mind and that I'll, and I'll talk with them about. Uh, Chad point, Chad's point a few minutes ago is a good one. And, and I think that the, uh, the discussion of PE Central and other resources um, makes sense as well. Somebody, somebody told me once that teaching is a profession of thieves in, in, in that we borrow and take a lot of things from other places when we construct our lessons. And uh, in, in so very rarely would I ever sit down and just write a lesson completely from scratch, right? I'm going to find resources in a book or online or in a previous lesson I've written or something that somebody else has given me. So I'm already drawing in resources. But what students need to be is critical consumers of those resources. So that, that, that I think, is the push for me more than anything, is just having conversations about you know, being a critical consumer about all resources that you may draw from, including something like this, if we position that as a resource. Um, uh, and I think that we can, uh, to be critical consumers of all that content and, and to not just take things and use them, but to think about them and their meaningfulness. Yeah. And I wonder if this won't stimulate, uh, and maybe people might disagree with this perspective, but our, our sort of obsession, at least in the US with content knowledge, and obviously content knowledge is foundational to quality teaching. But I had a conversation with a colleague about sort of the different, you know, general differences between European PE, higher ed and, and US, and it seems that there's a lot more theory integrated into undergrad programs and graduate programs generally speaking in in Europe and I wonder if, if in the U.S. this could sort of facilitate a transition to understanding broader theory and and the importance of learning environment and the importance of of relationships and some of these other things that have a lot of value in PE beyond the content knowledge because you know we're, we're talking about content now because that's what chat GPD does but if your learning environment sucks it doesn't matter what the quality of the lesson is. If, if kids aren't motivated, if they're not joyful, if they're not reflective, if they're not finding personal relevance in it. So I don't know, maybe that's a big picture question we can think about. Do you think this might prompt, you know, a pivot towards some of the higher level stuff in US I'm gonna context? Ask the, the European in the room here uh, <laughs> to see it. Let's put the Euro hat, the Irish hat on. Do you feel like there's, like there's more theory in because you went to school there you've done your doctorate here and now you're teaching in the u.s based programs yeah um so two things to go to your first question i guess um uh, i'm not going to speak for all of us here but i was a nerd in my undergraduate i enjoyed reading these papers reading all of this stuff i recently had a conversation with another friend of mine who went through the same teacher education program with me and i was like do you remember this class where we, we delved into this aspect of curriculum they're like you were the only one that was paying attention going <laughs> we've all moved on forgot we're teachers now you know you, you know so again it depends i suppose on the individual and you know you can you can bring a horse to water you can present all of that stuff which we would have been given i guess in my undergraduate training for sure but who's listening and who's paying attention when it comes down to actually using the, the, that that literature or all of these theoretical frameworks when they're asked them to write their essays or do things and you know I'm even thinking myself like how Spark Notes was such a big deal uh, 12 years ago. Uh, compared, you know, like Spark Notes was the chatbot of its uh, 
of its period of time, whatever, maybe not necessarily in a peak perspective, but definitely like I, I studied as an English teacher as well too. So we would drag information from that to support essays we were writing then. Uh, and then obviously they had to be turned into like plagiarism platforms as well online. Um, one of the things I suppose that jumped into my head there about, you know, how good, it's only as good as the context it can be applied in. Uh, and especially for me teaching a secondary methods course where similar, I think, to what you're talking about there, Kevin, it's very practical, it's hands-on. Um, a lot of what we, the assignments we do are actually done in class and out in the schools that they're in. So um, probably a, for me in my, the course I teach secondary methods, it, it, I don't ask them to write a lot of, uh, like, you know, I don't ask them to delve into literature too much. I'm asking them to really kind of reflect back and understand what's occurring in their classes supporting what their conclusions with a little bit of literature so i think it would blend in pretty well uh with that controversially the more i thought about this and the type of assignments i would have to assign uh and again this isn't necessarily this is just something that floats in my head uh we have atpa in maryland atpa is actually a good way of counteracting uh perhaps perhaps our atpa template is a good way of ensuring that it uh, AI isn't able to infiltrate a certain context because ultimately students, when they're completing those that type of assessment or reflection task, uh, their commentaries, they're being asked to comment on what's occurred in their own context, supported with literature as well too and things. So I think really being able to like position the, the learning knowledge or the learning in context uh, of the students where they are really that in the classroom, be it that in their schools, then ensures that you are actually look, asking them to think about how does this apply to what I'm doing right now or what I've just done um, from my own point of view. But yeah, um, I, do, I don't see it being trend bringing theory, uh, a shift in that, um, but who knows? And I think the, I think I tagged uh, all three of you in that tweet that somebody put out that said plagiarism's Plagiarism has been around in universities for ages, and students choose to plagiarize when they look at academia as a transactional process of, I'm coming in, I'm doing these assignments to get a grade in order to get a job, and they're not there for learning, they're there for completing a task. And I think that, you know, like, uh, Kevin, your qual class, like, you could ask a chatbot to produce interview transcripts and type them out in a made up individual and it would probably do it but that's like why are you in grad school then you know like if you're gonna cheat through an interview that you're doing to ask the chat like that is there's several steps that you took before you got to that place you know um so i think in that sense if it's explained and it's brought up to people and you know undergrads or grads and saying these are the places that it would be appropriate to use it and this could really help speed things up like even for like uh i think kevin you said this earlier in service teachers they do not produce lesson plans a lot a lot of times and we've been out to schools all around here they're good teachers but they don't have lesson plans they just kind of like do what they've done and but if you're able to produce this lesson plan with this idea, these ideas, write a lesson plan, maybe that, you know, helps them reflect more or plan more or plan more effectively. Like, 
I don't know. I, I see a lot of good uses. We, we were in our uh, faculty meeting yesterday and I explained this and we have, we've been asked by the college to come up with like taglines and key things, outcomes of our program to put on marketing material. So they're asking us like, what's the tagline that you want your physical education program to be known for? And then what are like the five key outcomes? And it's, it's a brainstorming session. And I opened up chat GPT and put it in, like, give me a tagline for a physical education and health teacher preparation program. Cause we're just sitting there kind of thinking around and trying to figure out. And it gave me five. And I said, now use the word movement or use the word joy or use the word meaningful and give me those same taglines again. And I think the chat GPT is going to have our tagline for for our program because what it came out with was I was like oh that's really good and everybody's like yeah that's great and then what are the outcomes it wasn't good on that part but it gave us four or five ideas and then we kind of snowballed from there to make our outcomes and now we have the text for the flyer yeah and that that I think is is intentional intelligent use of, of technology like this um because you're using it as part of a creative process, you're using it for idea generation, uh, but you're not giving, you're not, you're not taking what it gives you at face value and just using it, right? That you're, you're interfacing with it. So it's like augmenting the human experience with artificial intelligence rather than completely turning over our consciousness to the artificial intelligence. Have you gotten, uh, is there any written policy for your university? Like have they said, because Mason hasn't sent out any email regarding it at all. Like that was massive across the, like here, here's a panel or here's a webinar or here's the process. Like we don't start school for another week. So, or a couple of days, but I, I don't know. We, we have a panel and sort of a, a, a commitment to ongoing dialogue, which I think will ultimately lead to some broad policies or, or suggestions, which, you know, we're still talking about, you know, undergrad, but I think also applies to research. I'm, I'm sort of in the back of my mind last couple months thinking like there needs to be some level of consistent and consensus on perhaps the best way to apply this to the research. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's a PE field thing or a kinesiology, you know, broader field thing, but if we want to pivot to research, I think there's a lot to talk about there in terms of data analysis, bias, um, plagiarism or, or over support in terms of writing. Um, if we can kind of come together and, and, and understand the value of it, but also the potential dangers and then some sort of commitment to uh, appropriate use and ethical use, I think that would be a good first step. Obviously people don't have to, you know, adhere to that or acknowledge that, but, you know, it was a couple of suggestions. The only two suggestions I found was within all literature searches that I did was be transparent. If you use chat bot to support your writing, just disclose that. And the other one was uh, using a chat filter to to catch plagiarism for abstract submissions but mm. i feel like there's more 
to it than that. Uh, I don't know what that is, but I think we need to come up with a list of things and, and make a general commitment to it. Have you, uh, have you typed in a, cause so ResearchGate has open access things that I can click and put in. Um, I try to put a research, uh, research gate link to one of my papers to see if it'll give me a summary of that paper. Um, but the research gate link didn't work because it said it doesn't understand where it is because it's uh, the way the research gate paper is, it's like embedded in the page. So you don't go straight to the page. Um, and then when I put the DOI in, it's behind a paywall, so it didn't work. But I'm wondering, could I copy and paste the text of that article and say, give me a 500 word summary? Because that would speed up my reading of a bunch of papers. Yes, I would miss a lot of content, but if you're thinking about skimming abstracts, right? Which are sometimes like not very informative, right? Because you like, you write the abstract at the end or right before you like, you know, submit. And it's just like little text and, like the discussion or results section is really important. And for like JTP, it's 140 words. So what, what are you gonna learn in that 140 words? But I'm wondering if you can just copy and paste it and, and do a 500 word summary because the links didn't work. I was wondering about that as well. Um, if you could just, if you could, because the, 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 the general feel that I get with it is that, um, uh, the, the, the more information you give it, the better response it'll, it'll kick back out for you. So if you were to take something like put an entire manuscript in there and say, write an abstract of this paper, um, that, that, uh, that includes 150 words and is broken into these following sections, um, for like a structured abstract. Uh, I, I don't know what it would kick back out, but but it wouldn't surprise me if it gave you something pretty good. And in that statement right there, you know, I, I won't speak for everybody here, but but you know, m myself, um, I am so new to this. Like this is this is really outside of anything that I've ever thought about before. I, I've played with uh, the AI a bit, but um, I, I I really have a lot of more exploring to do. I think and uh, and, and thinking about different ways that it could be used. Um, you know, both both for 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 good and for more nefarious purposes. Um, you know, I I I I love the idea though, Risto, that you brought us together, even if we're just having more, you know, uh, kind of what if type conversations um, at, at this point in time. Uh, I hope others listen to this and and and, uh, and and take it seriously and give it some thought. So let me ask you this: as a as a co-editor of a leading American physical education journal. I'm not gonna put you on the spot, but like somebody could write an abstract for their paper and submit it. It's just the abstract. They're not writing anything else, but they're using their paper, their own work to ask a chat bot to produce an abstract, which if you're looking at, or even for like uh, the ISEP conference is coming up, right? Deadline, January 30th, right? But if I have a paper that's done and I copy it into chat GPT and ask them to do an abstract, is that ethical? It's my work, but it's summarized by a chat bot. So like, is, should there be a policy for JTPE, PESP, like quest, like that they're, like you said, chat, like 
that you have to say, I made this through a chatbot. And then does it not get accepted because like, or does that become a normal part of what we do? You know, and uh, like, I just think transparent, you know, this, and this is the type of conversation we need to have as a field, I think is like, you know, what do we think about this? Um, Yeah. And and you want to, you know, we don't want to prescribe or like, you know, like come up with like super tyrannical or whatever things for authors and researchers to do, but because it's so new, because it's, you know, not a lot of people, I don't, I don't know if it's on a lot of people's radar. I think we just need to be upfront about it as early as possible so that people can be transparent if they use it. I think the, the, the more dangerous thing is to using it to, to analyze data sets. Cause if your data set isn't complete or, or is biased, then the analyses by nature are going to be potentially biased as well. And so I don't you know if there's right on that. Cause I, my brain is not functioning and how you're going to use the chat bot to analyze a data set. I don't know if this is what a chat bot could do, but other AIs can be programmed to, to look at data. And let's say that, uh, you know, you're looking at a large physical activity data set and it's 85% male Midwesterners, but you don't, that that's not transparent. Then the data that you, the conclusions that the data makes through the analysis are going to be relevant only to that sort mm-hmm. of uh, sample. Um, and so I think the erring on the side of transparency is, is key at least as a first step. Um, and, and as you're talking about that, Chad, how is that different than SPSS? Or in vivo even, right? Uh, like, well, well, in vivo though, the researcher still has to make a lot of the decisions. Like that just gives you kind of like a structure um, to be able to play with. But But if I go into SPSS, I feed it information and then I tell it what to give me back and it does it for me, right? It, it gives, it, and if you're not, if you're not honest about what the composition of your sample, that could be potentially bias as well. I mean, so, so is this, is using AI for qualitative data analysis analogous to using quantitative data analysis software as we typically use it? I, I, I don't, I don't know, but it's an, it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. And maybe data in this sense, you know, we're thinking about it too narrow. Like that if we, if we think about data broader and more broadly as w- information on the internet getting back to one of the you know one of the first things that came up early on is the answers that we get are only based on what's available on the internet so if that's limited then the answer's naturally limited so i think that's that's the easiest way to look at this you know the potential danger for bias is if if like if if you ask what is the effectiveness of sport ed it's going to say it's the perfect model because most of the research is done by, you know, people that support it, people that are invested in it. This is hearkening to Hal Lawson's criticism of, of, of research in our field, but, you know, it's going to come out with a positive output because most of the research is in suggests positive influence when the reality is, you know, there hasn't been a lot of critical research on support. And that's just one example. Um, on the flip side, it's really easy to be critical of online research because a lot of the you know conclusions early on, especially, was very critical and and didn't have a lot of thought you know behind it because it was so new. And so, again, it gets back to being educated, and understanding what 
is actually coming out of this chat bot and using it with that in mind. Just to, to, to piggyback on that actually, Chad, as well, I think uh, what I observed when I tried to, to beat the bot <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> uh, which I failed miserably at, that will actually, the, the, the bot didn't recognize my name. So it's actually very accurate as well too. Um, <laughs> but um, I asked him, for example, to provide reference examples of research evidence showing that when students are actively engaged in shaping their own PE experiences, they are more likely to be motivated, engaged, and invested in their learning. And I did get about a 250 word response with three references, which were quantitative, uh, but were from the same high impact journal um as well so the chatbot seems to be i don't know like this is maybe this is a, a blind observation but when i asked a question that the the ai immediately sourced out quantitative data or quantitative i don't know if that's a coincidence or not but it seemed to lean it seems to lean more on the quantitative empirical data sets than it actually is on maybe what's available from a qualitative perspective were those uh, articles open open access um i mean um, I they're so. jtpe yeah and like, and prominent authors as well too. So I mean, they're not to be disputed, you know. I'm 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 still ruminating on on what we were talking about before. Um, so so the way that this is this is set up right now, uh, it, it probably wouldn't function this way. But let me let me let me pitch an idea to you and then try to justify it. Um, so uh, if you were to create a qualitative data analysis software that used AI. So it, the AI would have to have experience uh, qu analyzing qualitative data. That experience could be collectively sourced through all, through all platforms uh, on the AI. So it would learn and continue to grow uh, as it develops. Um, and, and then you could feed it articles uh, on occupational socialization theory, on whatever theory you're using and say, here's this data set of, of 30 interviews with physical education teachers on this topic. Uh, I'd please, please analyze it uh, uh, using a thematic analysis approach with constant comparison, um, using occupational socialization theory. Here are resources to help you learn about occupational socialization theory. So, so I think that you could get to a point where that could, that could automate much of the process of qualitative data analysis. And, and as we first think about that, I mean, my first thought is to cringe at that, but then, I mean, we've already automated transcription. That was, that was a controversial thing at the time because it distances researchers from the data uh, when, when you're not transcribing your own, your own interviews. And we've completely automated quantitative uh, data analysis. Uh, you know, everything, you used to have to um, do, um, you know, like Innova's all of these higher order analyses uh, by hand, uh, and now it's all point and click. So, 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 you know, what are what are a the pitfalls of something like that? Because I don't think that's that far removed from reality. Uh, what are the? Well, pitfalls I would say in five years, that's that's going to happen. Right? Probably exists in other fields. We just haven't heard it yet, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that and, and so just it. to your point, Kevin. Like I, you know one of the dangers you hear about is like, oh, all knowledge workers are gone. Like this is going to eliminate the need for academics, like, you know, human driven research is, you know, over. But what you're saying still requires deep knowledge and expertise. You still have to know yes. what questions to ask. First of all, you still have to know what problems to identify. Then you need to know what questions to ask. And then you need to know, you know, you're still feeding quality sources. You're still 
you know, providing it with an analytical lens. And so it's, it's, it gets back to, I think most of us mentioned like augmented, it's an mm-hmm. augmentation. It, it, it supplements the, the expertise and just evolves our role into something different and maybe something more efficient and more effective. And I don't know if that's the ultimate goal because, you know, the rhythm of the academia and, and humanism, you know, it, I hate, you know, hate to just put efficiency on a pedal, but at the same time, if we can expedite some of this research, it could, you know, could do some good as well. Yeah. Could, could be really interesting. So, so Rista, you posed a question before uh, and, and then gave me an out. Let me venture a half answer at it. Um, you know, so as, as the incoming editor of, of JTPE, I, I do think that this that that this uh, artificial intelligence and um, that this chatbot in particular has implications for, for 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 how we look at and think about publishing in academic journals. I, I I don't know that those implications are are immediately at the doors of our journals right now, but they're but they're getting really close and they're going to be there soon. So so um, you know I I don't know. I think that that's a conversation uh, between journal editors and the publishing houses that that sponsor them. Um, so that would be a common a conference a conversation that would involve stakeholders at JTPE along with stakeholders uh, at Human Kinetics. But at minimum, uh, I think that journals are, are, are more probably more likely the publishing houses. So maybe not the journals, but I think publishing houses at this point need to come up with some kind of a stance. And that stance may just be for the time being, um, you, uh, you know, uh, authors are not allowed to, to, to use AI to generate um, a, any aspects of their manuscripts. Maybe that's the, the, the first response, just to kind of, until we understand it better, until we can use it better, um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not necessarily advocating for that. Maybe along with what Chad was saying, that, that certain elements like an abstract could be AI generated if that's disclosed by the authors. Yeah. And it still has to go through peer review, right? So like, what is the peer reviewer going to say if like, then that's, that's opinions. So if, you know, Chad and I end up peer reviewing Kevin's paper that used the chat bot, and then we don't like that he used the chat bot, but he says that he used it, we could say, no, not allowed. Then I don't know, like, I think that would be that would like a journal. That's why you need a journal policy, right? Because if if the journal policy is that AI bots can be used to develop an abstract of the manuscript, then then um, that comment from the reviewer, I would I would tell the author to disregard that because the the, the doing that is in line with JTPE policy. And, and the reality is, is any policy is in most cases going to be an honor code, like the these things are so good and they're only going to get better that, you know, it's going to be just up to the individual, whether or not they want to be honest, if they used it to, to disclose that. Um, and there's a big difference. I, I did, I typed in, you know, what are the barriers and, you know, what are the benefits and barriers of online PE? Cause that's what, you know, that's what's on my mind and I actually came up with one that I hadn't thought of. And so like, if I integrate that into an introduction someday, do I have to say that I use a chatbot to, to get that idea? That's different than saying, hey, write my introduction or like this paragraph was, you know, what does transparency even look like? You know, what's the threshold of, you know, admitting that you use this? That's the gray area that, that, you know, like you said, Kevin, because it's so new, you know, what, what does that even look like? 
something that just came into my head there as well too was uh, international uh, international researchers as well too you know um, I mean I'm early career but I worked in as a graduate student I was working with uh, Asian students European students as well too with English as a second language you know if I've read a paper and I understand it but I can't articulate it properly uh, and I just need to be able to reference and explain the outcomes of that study to bolster my study. Perhaps this is something I would use to better articulate this if my my uh, level of English isn't as articulate, where we know that a lot of the high impact manuscripts require it to be written in English. Just a thought. Mm -hmm. well, and, and Chad, like the brainstorming session you had with ChatGBT about the benefits and pitfalls of uh, uh, online PE, what's the difference if we were here having that conversation with you and you took one of the ideas from this brainstorming session and then published a paper on it? Like, I would, let's say I came up with that idea. I'm never going to publish a paper on online PE. And so I don't care if you use that idea and you don't need to cite, like, oh, I had this conversation with these three other people. And during that conversation, this idea came up. Right. It's just like, it's intellectual conversation. You don't necessarily cite that unless like we're in the same field and that's my idea. And then you take it and publish it. Now that's a little different. That's now we go back into ethics. There's not necessarily a rule against that, but it's ethically very, very wrong for you to, take a study idea and complete it. And then I'm just like six months behind doing the same study, you know? But so any other like ideas is kind of, we come up on our hour. Um, any things that we haven't discussed or suggestions going forward? I, it's up to you guys. If you want to go here, I guess the last thing that's on my mind is something that you and I Risto talked about I think you posed a question last podcast. I don't know how long ago it was, but, you know, an AI PE system that tailors perfectly to the individual based on the data that it's given and continuously gets smarter. And so this sort of automated, asynchronous, AI-driven PE and what the implications are for something when, you know, for our field when something like that comes out. Um, that I might think, be for another podcast yeah, and I think that, that that's down the road yeah and we can have that conversation for sure because I think that's a that's another layer of unpacking that but um, gentlemen thank you so much for for coming on um, I'm actually gonna publish this right away so uh, it'll be out in the world so thanks for thanks for coming on thank you Risto thanks.